Race matters. 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 I'd like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal lands. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be in their hands long after us. It's a meeting place for sharing knowledge, stories and song, and we are privileged to be a part of that storytelling here today and every day at FBI Radio. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders past and present. We're broadcasting from Redfern right now, the birthplace of black theatre in this country. It's also a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. Welcome to Race Matters. This is a show hosted by people of colour, speaking with people of colour about the ways we understand and value our racial identities. I'm Sada Khan. And I'm Darren Lasagas. When people in positions of power do not represent the diversity of the community they serve, there are going to be issues. But deeper than that, they have long-lasting consequences. To know that young, promising journalists have not returned to the industry because of racism is a blight all of us should be ashamed of. It's time for systemic change and for organisations like ours to own up to it and do something about it. Yeah, powerful words from Rachel Hocking, Walpuri woman, journalist and host of NITV's flagship news and current affairs program, The Point. And uh, that's part of a statement she made on The Point last month, uh, following a bunch of SBS staff and ex-staff uh, coming out with their experiences of racism at the broadcaster. It's, uh, it's no small thing speaking truth to power on the very platform that you're critiquing. And uh, we're excited to have Rachel on the show to chat about the reception to these comments, the current unprecedented record with racism in the media and her experience in the industry more broadly. Yeah, and Rachel's also a board member of the DART Centre for Journalism and Trauma. So we're also going to be speaking with her about secondhand trauma and the responsibility that comes with reporting on your own community, especially as an Aboriginal reporter covering the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, also, you've no doubt seen the uh, the tragedies uh, unfolding in Beirut, Lebanon. Uh, just a quick reminder, we popped a couple of links on our program page to where you can donate to help the people on the ground. listening to Race Matters. I'm Darren Lasagas. And I'm Sada Khan. We're joined right now by Woolpury woman and NITV journalist Rachel Hocking. Rachel co-hosts NITV The Point and she's also the board member for the Dart Centre for Journalism and Trauma. Rachel, thank you so much for coming to Race Matters. Hey, thanks for having me. Of course. Earlier on in the show, we heard some of the comments uh, that you made on The Point uh, last month in solidarity with staff and ex-staff sharing their experiences of racism at the SBS. Um, how have you felt about the reception to that episode? Oh, wow. Um, I mean, first of all, just want to acknowledge that the person I was responding to in particular was Cody Bedford, who is an Aboriginal woman who came out very bravely on Twitter Mm. and talked about her experiences of racism, discrimination and bullying at SBS uh, quite a number of years ago now. And so I was just speaking up in response to one, that statement, and then the many statements that followed 
which pointed out that despite being the national multicultural broadcaster, SBS is not exempt from being an unsafe place for people of colour in this country. And so I thought that as a brown journalist in this country, as a black woman in this country who has a platform and is lucky enough to co-host a national current affairs program, that I should say something about it. And I would like to acknowledge that I was actually backed in that statement by my managers and by my colleagues as well. Many of my colleagues who have also made their own statements online. So that's where it came from. And that's what I felt like I needed to do, because there's no point talking about racism every single week on my show if I'm not going to speak up about Mm. it when it happens in my own backyard. And the reception was overwhelmingly positive. I think a lot of people thought that it was good to see acknowledgement internally. Um, I, I think that it's it continued the conversation. I think that it was um, really good to see victims supported more broadly. Um, I was just doing what anyone in my position should do, though, and so it's not like we should get a massive kudos for doing this. This is literally we have such a privileged position to have a platform to speak that if we're not doing anything with that position to lift up other people who haven't had that sort of platform, that access to community, then um, I don't know. I don't know why we get into journalism in the first place. You know what I mean? So, um, yeah, the reception was really positive. And I think that we have seen some really positive changes since then, but it has all started with the victims speaking out in the first place. People like Cody Bedford, who spoke up on Twitter. So, you know, if they didn't speak up, we wouldn't be here now talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. And like, it takes a lot to take that first step. It takes a lot of, I guess, consultation and communication with people in your own circles about, you know, is this the right move? How do we move forward in doing this? Like, you know, it's not just an individual going out on their own and being like, this happened to me and taking charge on their own. It's always kind of like, we we always having these discussions in amongst ourselves about racism and experiences we have within the workplace, but then to go out and take that like first step of walking out, it is a kind of like, it's a domino effect. That's right. And it's not really surprising either. Like we weren't surprised at all when all of this stuff started coming yeah, we also felt the onus on ourselves within our own workplace to ha- champion that same type of conversation and feel like, you know, well, we're pointing it out everywhere, everywhere else. What about where we're actually standing right now? Like, because we're not the only people that are going to be walking into these doors. Mm-hmm. You know, there's going to be a whole mob, a whole nother generation coming in after us. So what kind of, what are we doing now? And it can feel really exhausting of being like, you know, oh, the onus is constantly on us to do that change. But at the same time, it does very much... Um, become more less challenging to do when we have each other by each other's sides in order to have those conversations. So have you, what has been the reception from your guys and since having that episode? Yeah. So I think like you touched on it there, Sarah, I mean, like we have these conversations internally all the time. Mm -hmm. None of us were actually surprised when this stuff was aired publicly. It's pretty depressing that it has taken some really brave people to put our dirty laundry out there for Mm. uh, actual change to start being implemented. But the fact is, is we knew there were issues for a long time. 
Uh, the whole media landscape is guilty of this shit. There is no newsroom in the country that is free of racism. Yep. And, you know, that's the same for community broadcasters, but obviously there are some places that are better than others, and SBS and NITV have always been better than others. It's just important that we point out that we still have issues and there are structural issues there because there has not been a reckoning in uh, media in Australia yet. We have not actually pointed out the structural racism that this country was built on. And until all of that is reckoned with, then all of these issues are going to keep coming up. And so I think internally what's happened is a lot of us have just said, look, we've joked about this from time to time. We've, you know, spun yarns about, like, the racism we copped casually or the the racism which didn't seem like racism at the time. But there's no point being silent anymore because what's happening is younger people are going to have to deal with this when they come through the doors. And who are we to now be senior to allow young people to walk in those doors and experience that thing, knowing that it's a possibility? Yeah, you touched on this being, you know, within our microcosm of circles, it's happening nationally. It's also happening globally, as we're seeing as well. Mm. Um, this problem is far from isolated to this country, uh, let alone any one organization. Uh, NPR journalist uh, Sam Sanders recently dedicated a whole episode of his podcast. It's called It's Been a Minute. Uh, to what he calls, uh, you mentioned reckoning, the great reckoning of 2020. Mm. Um, and there's a bit of the yep uh, that jumped up to us uh, that I want to play a little bit of um, where he's talking to Soraya. Nadia McDonald, who is a Pulitzer Prize-nominated culture critic. My hope for this reckoning um, is that there is not one more class of, you know, young, earnest 22-year-olds coming out of journalism school um, who basically have to go through this really damaging gauntlet where you're constantly sort of questioning yourself and your own worth. And, you know, I think there are a lot of really talented journalists who have been driven from the field because at some point they feel like they have to make a choice between their own mental health or being a journalist. And they choose yeah. self-preservation. And I cannot blame them. Um, and that is really a shame because think about the people that those journalists know. Think about the stories that they could have told. So... As a Wolperi woman, hearing that and being First Nations means that we are inherently storytellers. Mm -hmm. It's what we do daily. We wake up, that's everything, like, our existence is a part of that storytelling. And telling our own stories and self-determining the platform and the framework of our identity has consistently been censored, erased and manipulated to fit an agenda that functions against us. So how do you kind of practice self-care amongst <laughs> those spaces in order to self-determine the narrative? That's a great question. I think it's um, self-care is something we don't talk about enough, I don't think, as people of colour and blackfellas in this country, because we carry such a heavy burden and we feel like it's just, it is our job every day to go out there and speak truth and to, you know, shake up the status quo. And it can be exhausting. So making sure you're looking after yourself when you come home and that you're able to actually do your job um, is really important. But um, in terms of what you just touched on there about the fact that you are coming up against for the most part, newsrooms which have an agenda when they have a story they want to tell about you. When, um, for the most part, newsrooms in this country want to tell a story about Aboriginal people, we know what that story, for mm. the most part, is going to look like when it comes out the other side because there has been a narrative about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in this country that um, feeds into you know these greater stereotypes which feeds into policymaking and 
um, when you come in as a young Aboriginal journalist and you are working with people who have only ever known one way of reporting on our people, it is very hard to challenge that and it's very hard to say, hang on a second, that is not the story. You are not actually seeing the story here. And that can come down to some very small things. So you might be putting together a package for the news and they might ask you to go and interview a researcher, a white researcher, uh, an Aboriginal elder, maybe do some vox pops on the street with people who don't know what the fuck they're talking about. And they expect you to privilege the researcher's perspective and put that white researcher at the top of the story. Now, Blackfellow Way, you're going to put your elder's voice first. You're going out to community, you're interviewing people whose knowledge about your people, their history, their land is the most rich you are going to get. So yeah, you are going to respect that knowledge first. And that is not something that's taught to white journalists. That's not something that's taught in university. And that's a big issue, the way that we structure and the way that we privilege knowledge in journalism. And so challenging that as a black fellow is really hard. It's easier at places at SBS and NITV where we have more black journalists, and that's the only way it's going to change. If you have more black journalists and black editors, Mm. the people making the decisions about who goes out and tells these stories. But we still have to butt heads, and there is still going to be white management at the end of the day because we've we've heard we've heard how white places like SBS still are Mm. at the top level, and so we are still bashing our heads on occasion. Um, it, it's it's force in numbers, though. So the more young black journalists we have coming through and the more black journalists who get promoted to editor positions, the more we're going to see this change. But in the meantime, I mean, like, if you're a black fella out there listening right now and you are in a position where you feel like you're bashing your head against the wall all the time to make these changes, make sure you run yourself a bath when you come home, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, buy yourself some scented candles. I don't know, call up your aunties, call up the people you trust, surround yourself with people whose opinions aren't going to weigh you down, mm. people who aren't going to play devil's advocate with you every fucking second yep. and, you know, talk to people and surround yourself with people who care about mm. you. I think, like, a key thing in that as well is knowing that so long as your community backs you up, you're never wrong mm-hmm. because we get so challenged in these spaces. We do. It ends up it, – it, it's a mind game and we end up questioning ourselves and we end up questioning, are we on the right page? Are we doing the right thing? Have I spoken out of turn? Am I being to this? Am I being – like it is. It's a form of like it's a for, it's a tactic of the colony. Yeah. You know. And so, we, so long as I always remind myself, so long as my titters have got my back, so long as my titters back me up, I'm never going to be wrong, and everyone else can jog on. <laughs> I said what I said. <laughs> That's exactly it. Like when you're, you're talking about accountability, right? Yeah. Like we are the most accountable people in That's the right. world. And I mean, look, sometimes we let our mob down and and I certainly have before and we will know within two seconds if we have Mm. and you will be um, taught, you will have a lecture and you can learn from that or you can go the other way and choose to not uh, respond to the people who want to pull you up because they care about you and they care about the privilege that you carry to represent community views but I I think it is like I feel so honored to have my community pull me up yeah it is it is is. it's such an important thing because like how are we gonna ever know how to do better how are you gonna go into this fight if you're not having people checking you the right people check you that's it and that's something that the you know white people don't understand 
when it comes to accountability. They think that it's like they can just keep going on and on and on and there's no change that's ever going to happen. And so we've had many conversations about this as well, like cancel culture mm-hmm. and all of that. And it's like if you're not being held accountable and you're not listening to the accountability, it's not a cra- it's not about like being a hater <laughs> and it's not about this lateral this or that. It's about actually learning how to do better and hearing from the people's voice because like sometimes if you're spe- being a spokesperson for something consistently, mm-hmm. you can, you can kind of, those other voices don't get heard as often. That's why we always reflect back and go back to community. Yeah. It's it's really easy, I think, as um, black people in the media industry to develop an ego and to think that your views are more important or what's in front of you is more important than community, but nothing will ever be more important than your community. And so it's so important to just stay grounded um, Mm. and find ways to keep yourself grounded. And I think the most important thing is to have that connection when you leave work. Make sure that you are part of the community you are reporting on and that Mm. you, like, that. how can you stand up there and say that you're an Aboriginal journalist reporting on the issues in your community if you have no connection? Yeah. If you aren't going out there and making the most effort to give back to those people who are sharing their stories with you, uh, it, it is so important to not forget where you come from. Yeah. Uh, I'd love to talk about your journey into the industry of journalism. What first drew you to, to journalism? Hey, uh, that's a good question. <laughs> I've answered this a few times over the years, yeah. but it was actually um, uh, because I thought creative writing wouldn't lead me anywhere. Um, I'm, I'm oh, stop it. Yeah. That's sad. <laughs> and, uh, isn't it sad? I was, um, I was really gunning for a creative writing course, and um, my nana, she's like, oh, Rage, I don't know if you're going to be able to make money writing books. <laughs> And I was like, oh, okay, uh, I want to write, though. What should I do? And she's like, I don't know, write for a newspaper or something. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And so I looked at journalism courses when I was in um, end of year 11, beginning of year 12, and I was like, oh, these actually look all right, hey, um, and and did it. Uh, yeah, if I had have realised how white journalism was in this country at the time, it might have changed my mind, but I kind of went in a bit blind. Um, mm. I wasn't a huge news consumer at uh, high school, to be honest. And so I didn't really know what I was coming in for. And then it wasn't until like second year journalism in Melbourne that I did an elective on Indigenous policy. And I became like, I, I was aware of how fucking racist the media could be, but it became very obvious the power when the media does report badly on Indigenous people, the power that that can have and the impact impact on um, on policy making. And um, it was when I was looking into the NT intervention, uh, where my people are from and, and where I was actually able to pinpoint the media campaign, which had directly led to massive decisions, which still to this day affect people in the Northern Territory. And I thought, well, if I can do something which helps this never happen again, then that's what I'm going to spend my life doing. Mm. You mentioned not knowing how white the industry was when you first were being introduced to it. If you could give any advice to young, aspiring First Nations journos uh, based on your time so far in the industry, what would it be, you know, besides setting a nice bath when you get home? Hey, <laughs> yeah, definitely <laughs> have some bathrooms ready. Um, surround yourself with your people. Like, find other people of colour. Because, we, look, we've built it up now. Like, it's we're not at the point we need to be, but... There is community radio like FBI in Melbourne. We've got 3CR. We've got Triple R. There are safe places in the media 
uh, find your safe places and find other people online. So I've I've made so many mates who I've never met on Twitter. Right, mm. Black Twitter is a safe. Oh my space. god, Black Twitter is fire. <laughs> it's fire. It is hot, spicy tea. I love it. I live for it. Yeah. If I want to find out some like gossip, I'm also like just like what's their opinions? Like? Let's go to yeah, Black yeah, Twitter because yeah. that's where I know if I'm right or wrong. <laughs> my gut feeling about something. That's it. That's it. You want to find out if you did wrong on a story? Just post it. <laughs> You, they will let you know within five minutes. <laughs> but there are, there, there are people on there who will have your back. Yeah. And if you're coming in in your junior, you know, there's going to be patience for you too. But make sure that you're willing to learn. Make sure that you're willing to be wrong because you, you're going to make mistakes coming into the media. But also come in strong. Get ready to challenge. Don't go into a newsroom accepting that what they're going to tell you is the truth, that the style guide they give you is the exact way you need to be writing. Because those style guides, for the most part, were written by white old men in the 50s. Yeah. And, you know, they need to be challenged. We need to be challenging the way that we have been told news has always been done in this country. That's right. You are listening to Race Matters. I'm Sada Khan. I'm Darren Lasagas, and right now we're joined by a Walpree woman, journalist and host of NITV's The Point, Rachel Hocking. Um, so when George Floyd was murdered and Black Lives Matter protests in the US erupted, there was a strong anger felt by our communities here because the majority of people were pointing the finger to systemic racism in the States and ignoring ongoing colonial violence mm. happening on our own lands to our own peoples here, even to the point where we had that reporter make that now very infamous statement. <laughs> what did she say? I really appreciate you giving your perspective, mate, because people in Australia don't have the understanding of the history of police killings over there. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> which was just like... That is kind of that is the point. Um, (laughs) But (laughs) going for my job over here. (laughs) But as a journalist um, who has long been covering police killings and police brutality against First Nations people, how did you initially feel about that blatant erasure of stories you've already been telling? Yeah, and erasure by journalists. You know, yeah. like, it was frustrating because we're like, come on, we we broadcast this stuff. We and it, and we do like there are there are stories about police brutality, deaths in custody, uh, injustice in the justice system, almost weekly in this country for mm-hmm. our mob. And so, the fact that it felt so erased by our mainstream media and by media in the states when talking about this country, mm. that was that was frustrating. And um, it's not surprising, though. I mean, we see it every single time the Black Lives Matter movement strikes up again. It's just that because it was so big this time, they were not able to ignore the fact that we do have a very similar situation in this country and in some cases worse. So uh, it's it's been really interesting to see it explode because I know there are families like the Dungay family mm. who are like fed up with the fact that they have been calling for justice since around 2015 yeah. and that only now people are really starting to listen and say, hang on a second, he said the same words that George Floyd said. He said, I can't breathe. He was asking for biscuits and mm. and he lost his life in custody and we should be outraged by that. But that outrage has only really started to feel palpable in the last month at a national level. I'm glad it's happening now because it's better late than never, but at the same time I feel for those families and, the, and there are so many. There are so many families across this country who are grieving right now and, and also waiting for people to wake up and listen to their story as well because let's remember that 
the only reason the story of George Floyd, the story of even the Dungay family have exploded so much is because we have footage. We have video footage of these moments. Mm. There are so many people who have died in custody where we don't know what happened. Yeah. And those families will still fight for justice regardless of whether the rest of the country wakes up and listens. Yeah. And it's incredibly infuriating as well when that erasure occurs because it's like you, you're already putting that work back even further now because these families and the people with these families as well that are tirelessly working every single day mm-hmm. to get these stories heard and to get these stories just basically acknowledged. Mm-hmm. And then you have this one reporter come up on a national level and just have just one statement like that. And it's like all of that work is like disintegrated. It's like pushed back another 10 steps. And that journalist was sent to the States. Like, I mean, come on, like if that journalist didn't even know what was going on in their own country, why? Why do they get this platform? But Mm. this is the problem with media in this country is that journalists just aren't trained to report on issues in our communities. Mm. They're not taught to report on race. They're not taught to report on racism. And they don't understand the own issues in their own backyard before they go and become a foreign correspondent. That is not good enough. Yeah. They're also not given any training in their own privilege and understanding their own whiteness as well. That's a big problem. (laughs) I feel like if you're going to enter into a space like that as a white person, Mm -hmm. especially, you really need to go through a lot of work in understanding your whiteness and how you function within it. A lot of them aren't prepared for that, though, either, and that's a whole other conversation. It's a really good point because... We just throw journalists out mm. into situations where there are traumatised people. Yeah. People who have gone through, you know, the death of a loved one, people who have gone through the police coming through their communities and destroying them. And then journalists come in unprepared and pretty much ready to re-traumatise these people without any consequences when they walk away from that situation. Mm. And, and it's so it's so often, and, and I don't think that... There is still enough of a focus on that in journalism schools in this country, but it's starting to become more of a conversation. What we do when we go into a community, what is our responsibility mm-hmm. when we go and interview someone who has just lost someone, somebody who has just been the victim of a crime, somebody who has just been the victim of police brutality? How do we approach that person sensitively and compassionately? And also the will- have a willingness to walk away if that person doesn't want to talk to you. Yeah. On this note of um, training and creating awareness amongst journalists and in that industry, Rachel, you're also uh, a board member uh, of the DART Centre for Journalism and Trauma, which if you're unfamiliar, it's a resource centre and global network of journalists, uh, journalism educators and health professionals dedicated to improving media coverage of trauma, conflict uh, and tragedy, um, coverage of all of that in the media. Uh, Recently, you hosted a debrief for Aboriginal journalists who have been covering Black Lives Matter over the past few months. Could you tell us a little bit more about this debrief? Yeah, so look, we will be holding more debriefs as well um, if you're listening and this is the first time you've heard about it. But yeah, basically we, so at the beginning of the year, the Dart Centre actually held a debrief for journalists who had covered the bushfires because going into uh, a community which has been devastated by any natural disaster is pretty confronting. Mm. You have to, one, have training before you go in, but also when you get there, the people you're speaking to and the people, the journalists who did go into these communities for the most part, were very trained and a lot of them had actually grown up in places which had been affected by bushfires. So they carried that empathy and that understanding. But that doesn't change the fact that you can still walk away from an interview and even though the focus has to be on your talent and not traumatising them and being very sensitive in the way that you ask questions, journalists can still leave that situation and carry trauma themselves. Yeah. 
we know as blackfellas in this country that there is no story on Indigenous affairs that we will ever cover which won't be close to home. Mm. And uh, so as an Indigenous reporter at the National Indigenous Television Network, uh, it is very hard to separate yourself from these stories sometimes. When it comes to national stories, which the whole media landscape is covering, that's when it becomes really exhausting. So Black Lives Matter has been in the news every week for the past couple of months. And black journalists in this country have often been the ones who have been assigned to those stories in white newsrooms, let alone in black newsrooms where they do them all the time. And the nature of covering deaths in custody every single day, day in, day out, speaking to people who have similar experiences to your own family, speaking to people from your own communities, it is exhausting and it's tiring and it can be traumatising. You can go home and you just don't switch off because you then have to talk to your own family members or you then yarn with your mates mm. about it. And you are carrying something where the percentages, the likelihood, the statistics you report on include you. And that is a really strange thing to reckon with as a journalist. So we thought, you know, let's have a yarn with some of the journalists who are in the same boat as us at the moment. Let's let them know that they're not alone. And um, it was good. It was really cathartic. It was. Um, it, it, it turned into a lot of just, you know, nonstop rambling. Like yeah. It went a lot of places. We didn't expect it to go because people just had so much to get off their chests. Mm. And you have to allow for that. And I think, like, having, this is what I was saying earlier, it's about surrounding yourself with people who are safe for you, surrounding yourself with your mob, people you trust. If you're coming into this industry, it's going to be bloody hard. You need to be able to just get stuff off your chest sometimes. And that's what that was about. Yeah. And cut yourself some slack as well. Yeah. I feel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's it, right? You, like, have a, you do. You have, a, you have a big job. You facilitate big stories that are oftentimes marginalised and not ever heard of. They haven't been heard of. They've like really for the past like since the start of colonization, mm-hmm. they've been consistently pushed under. So the roles that you kind of hold now, it's it's a lot and it's a lot to carry and a lot of trauma is obviously involved in that as well, especially with the conversations that we're currently having. But there's also a sense sometimes I feel a sense of a, of a turning point yeah. too in terms of how we're actually engaging in these conversations critically and how we critically um, want to move forward in terms of being pragmatic about things as well. Mm. And so how are you kind of feeling in this moment about the current movement? Yeah, that's a good question because I think it's actually a question that I ask of people as well when we're reflecting on this moment and how do we know that it's going to be different to last time? How Mm. do we know that all these headlines talking about systemic change, talking about defund the police, how do we know that's actually going to eventuate? Um, this moment feels different. I don't know if that counts for much, but it feels different. Uh, it feels like there's more con- concerted attention on this issue than there has ever been in my lifetime. Um, and certainly for a lot of the older people that I've spoken to as well, they feel like it feels different. But in terms of whether or not this is actually going to lead to something different, well, when we talk about systemic change, th- that's not an easy concept. That's something that for the most part, it, it takes time. Mm-hmm. And like, we don't, we can't look into the future right now. We can't see what this country is going to look like in one year's time. So there's got to be patience that comes with that, but there's got to be a lot of hard work. And I think that the biggest thing is there's got to be sacrifice. 
So there's got to be all those people who are putting their money where their mouth is right now who are saying black lives matter to us. You know, these big corporations who want to post a black square on their Instagram page, these big corporations who want to start employing more black interns or whatever it is that their commitment to diversity is. They need to actually look at what structural change looks like. It looks like sacrifice. It looks like the CEO taking a pay cut and giving that money somewhere else where it's going to make a difference. It means that people need to look at their boards and look at how representative they are and switch them up if that's what it takes. It means that you need to look at the executives of your organisation, who's making decisions every single day about the lives of black and brown people and are those people representative of the views of those communities. Uh, it, it's going to take a lot of work. Mm. And I, I'm not 100% sure that we're going to see the change we need to see, but we're seeing something mm. and I'm clinging on to that. Yeah. Uh, we're nearing uh, towards the end of our time with Rachel, but this is a question we ask of all our guests uh, who come on Race Matters. Mm. Uh, Rachel Hocking, when did you realise there was power in your race? Oh, that's a great question. Um, when did I realise there was power in my race? I think I realised that there was power in being a Walpri woman or a Walpri girl when when I saw, when I was younger, growing up in the Northern Territory. So Walpri country, for anyone listening, uh, it's Central Desert, right near Alice Springs and Catherine in the centre of Australia. Um, and for me, I think probably the moment where I had the most pride in um being a Walpri person and knew that there was actual power in identifying as a Walpri person was um, when I was in the Northern Territory as a kid. And I remember walking through the mall uh, in Darwin and um, there was a old fellow who was busking and he usually does busk there. And we're walking past and he waved out to me and my mother at the time. And um, I'd been looking for probably about 10 metres uh, before we got to him. And um, nearly every single person who he waved at walked straight past and didn't even pay attention to him. Some actually went out of their way to walk quite a far distance away from him. And when we got closer, he looked up and saw mum and you know gave her that look that mm. blackfellas give each other. And she looked straight at him and smiled and just sat down and started yarning and took me down with her and sat down and started yarning. Um, I think in that moment I was like, this is what we do for our people. This is what we, we're, we're not going to be like the rest of you because you might be too ashamed to acknowledge, the, you know, the um, oppression or the injustice that's in your own backyard. But when it comes to mob, we can see past that and we can see humanity. And that the fact that I was reminded that because of my upbringing, because of the people I've been around that I will never not see the humanity in another person. I love that. And that's your power. That's yeah. our power. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. That's absolutely it. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing space with us and sharing your words with us. We really appreciate it. You can catch Rachel Hocking on The Point Wednesdays at 8.30pm on NITV. Also, go and give her a follow on Twitter as well. Go and get up in black twitter if you ever hey. want to learn proper way <laughs> online <laughs> when we talk about google a good resource is black twitter as well <laughs> thank you so much for joining us on race matters thank you i really love today race matters 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 race matters, race matters. Race matters.